I've often wanted to sing. I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the 2,000 people on the faculty of Harvard University. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. They share our beliefs, our convictions, our hopes, and our dreams. These are the conservatives of the heart. They are our people. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI. Educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny and James. Today we're excited to share with you our panel on Sam Goldman's recent book, After Nationalism, from ISI's inaugural homecoming event. You'll hear Sam talk a little bit about the book, and then we have responses from Dan McCarthy, editor of our journal, Modern Age, Helen Andrews, senior editor of the American Conservative, and Rachel Bovard, senior director of policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute. If you're interested in attending events like this one, go to isi.org slash join to become a member and get regular invites to events like this one. Before we get to our panel, I wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who has written a review of the show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you are listening. For those of you who have not had the chance to review the show, we would appreciate if you took a few minutes to rate and review Conservative Conversations. This will help us reach more listeners with the important thinkers and ideas we're discussing here. And moreover, if there are any topics, guests, or anything else you want to hear on the podcast, please shoot us an email. You can email us at podcast at isi.org. Without further ado, let's get to the panel. My name is Johnny Burtka, and I'm the president of ISI, and I'm happy to welcome you to our second panel, uh, which started out as a panel to assess the state of conservatism, but there have been so many panels on uh, uh, where conservatism is headed, where it's going, uh, that I thought for a second we would call it not another panel on the future of conservatism. Uh, But then as I was pondering what on earth am I going to call this, uh, Sam published a wonderful book called After Nationalism, Being American in an Age of Division. Uh, And Sam is actually the literary editor of Modern Age. Uh, Dan is the editor-in-chief. So this is really a uh, editor's panel. And something that we're really trying to do more consciously at ISI this year is to integrate Modern Age into our student programming. I think we've got two of the uh, sharpest thinkers Uh, on the right, uh, represented in Dan and Sam, and they complement each other's perspectives so well that we want to bring it into our student programming. We'll have a Meet the Editors panel uh, at our uh, honors conference this August in Williamsburg, so it's really uh, exciting to have a a panel devoted to uh, the work they're doing in the publication. Before we get started, I just would like to uh, introduce uh, the speakers that you'll be hearing from. We've got Sam Goldman. He serves as the executive director of the John L. Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom at George Washington University, where he's the associate professor of political science, and he's also the literary editor of Modern Age. Uh, To his left, we have Dan McCarthy. Uh, He is the editor-in-chief of Modern Age, the director of the Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship Program at the Fund for American Studies. Uh, Next is Helen Andrews. Uh, She is a senior editor at the American Conservative. Uh, And uh, Rachel Bovard, senior director of policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Not an editor. Not an editor. (laughs) But she is in modern age. That's right. Uh, So just to get started, I I thought uh, Sam's book was particularly timely um, because it really discusses the question of our identity. Who are we as Americans? 
And uh, several years ago uh, in DC, when I was working there, we were organizing these regular dinners where we'd have scholars and you know, think tank analysts and journalists come together uh, for these dinner salons. And we actually did a, top, uh, a dinner salon on this very topic. And the question that was presented to the group was, who are we as an American people? What binds us together? And what does it mean to be an American? And the participants, you probably would know most of the people in the room. I'm not going to mention who they were. Uh, suffice it to say that their, their professional, their full-time job, they're being paid to have an answer to that question. And the question was posed to the group, and it was crickets. You know, no one knew really how to respond. Uh, they knew maybe historically what it meant to be an American. They didn't really know what does it mean to be an American today? What constitutes our American identity? Uh, after the, the dinner discussion, I even asked a presidential historian the question, and he couldn't really give me an answer. Uh, so Sam's book, in, in some way, makes a provocative thesis that I was asking the wrong question. Right? Instead, according to Sam, of searching for a mythical unity, a common denominator, or uh, what he described as an impossible consensus, the better question, perhaps, is how do we live together peacefully in a vast modern commercial republic while maintaining the principles of personal freedom and legal equality found in our Constitution. Uh, so that is, is Sam's thesis. And uh, we'll give him an opportunity to actually do a book talk, uh, 10 minutes to summarize the core arguments of his book, which I would encourage you to purchase uh, in ISI after the talk. And then we'll give the rest of the panelists an opportunity to respond. And then we'll open it up to Q&A. So Sam, take it away. Um, and before I begin, um, I do have a bone to pick with uh -oh. you, okay. <laughs> which is that you, you've set me up here um, with three of the most acute and devastating uh, critics um, of, of our time. Um, and I don't think that was really fair. So I'm upset about that. Um, I, I, I had hoped for patsies who would praise me and my correct opinions about everything. Um, but I think you in the audience uh, will enjoy this conversation more. Um, so uh, the, the title of the book, as is often the case with books of this kind, um, is something of a tease uh, intended to attract your attention, but I think also uh, susceptible to misunderstanding. So I want to begin by saying what the argument isn't before turning to what it is. Um, and the first thing that I'm not saying in this book um, is that appeals to national symbols or history or rhetoric are a thing of the past. Um, politicians will continue to drape themselves in the flag, uh, both literally uh, and rhetorically, um, and there's nothing surprising or wrong with that. Um, and uh, I happened to notice recently when I was reading President Biden's inaugural address, which I hadn't actually watched, how remarkably similar it was in many passages to President Trump's address, uh, almost word for word in the tributes to national unity and to the, the, the um, admirable qualities of American cooperation and so on. So I'm not saying that that is over. Uh, nor uh, is the book a critique of some of the policy arguments that have been associated uh, with the revival of interest in nationalism over the last five or six years. Um, some of these policies with regard to trade or immigration um, or tech, I agree with. Some I disagree with. Uh, some I don't understand well enough to have an opinion on. Um, but I think in almost every case, um, 
figures associated with the revival of nationalism have raised serious and valuable questions um, that command a thoughtful response. And in that respect, they've done a service. What I am saying, though, is that even if these policies or others like them were adopted, it is very unlikely um, that they would promote substantially greater cohesion, solidarity, or unity uh, among the population of this republic. And one of the reasons um, involves the really extraordinary scale of the United States, which I think we we don't think about Mm. um, often enough as a political challenge. Um, The population uh, of this country, I I believe, has now um, passed 330 million, um, which is five or six times greater than the population of the Roman Empire at its height, um, depending exactly how you count, and is orders of magnitude uh, larger than the examples of more cohesive nation states that are often cited um, in these discussions. Um, On the left, uh, people often refer to Denmark or Sweden. Um, Denmark has a population roughly comparable to that of metropolitan Phoenix. Um, On the right, sometimes the state of Israel, which has a population Um, comparable to that of New York City. So uh, the United States is really a different different animal Hmm. to these smaller societies, and I think that needs to be taken into account. Uh, There are also recent challenges to national unity or cohesion. Um, One is technological transformation, um, an issue that Rachel um, has uh, studied much more extensively than I have. Uh, The other is what might be described as the identity revolution, um, which the first panel discussed. Um, And that seems to have taken shape in its modern form roughly in the 1960s, but I think actually has much deeper um, social and cultural origins. But there are also historical challenges, and this is really the main um, argument of the book. Um, I suggest that we Americans have never been as unified um, and as loyal to each other and common principles as we would sometimes like to think. Um, And in particular, I describe three symbols or or metaphors that stand for different understandings of American national identity, um, each of which uh, has had uh, moments of success um, and contains elements of truth, um, but has also historically failed to answer the question of what it means to be American. And I I designate um, these three visions uh, covenant, which is a way of describing an understanding um, of the American people as a chosen nation comparable to the biblical people of Israel, a crucible or melting pot, which is associated in popular memory um, with the port cities uh, of the East Coast in the early 20th century, but I try to show historically um, was a more Jeffersonian idea that emphasized Western expansion um, and the transformative uh, consequences of an agricultural lifestyle. And finally, 
creed, um, which designates the argument that to be American is to uphold certain uh, political and moral principles, um, an idea that certainly has precedence extending uh, back into the 18th century, but that I think was fully articulated and institutionalized around the middle of the 20th century in connection with the Second World War and early Cold War. And I think that when many people today evoke a previous era of consensus and cohesion, that's really mm. what they have in mind. So each of these moments um, contains elements of truth and was successful in different ways, um, but none worked continuously or generally. And I see American history as uh, an ongoing process of reinvention and rediscovery in search of a sense of community that we need, but that also continually eludes us. And this raises the question of whether we might um, be in line for another reinvention or, or rediscovery. This has happened before um, and could conceivably happen again. And that, that may happen, um, but I think that we tend to look in the wrong place um, for these developments. Um, conversations on these issues um, revolve uh, around formal education and classroom instruction. Um, I'm just not convinced that those are the most significant formative institutions hmm. um, to continue um, one of the themes of the weekend. Um, and in particular, I, I think that if what we're talking about are narratives or stories or metaphors or visions rather than scholarly arguments, um, it is to creative culture um, that we must look for renewal um, rather than to textbooks um, and lectures. And in that respect, um, I think even more than in formal uh, education, um, conservatives have been uh, routed and should redouble energies. I was just talking um, to uh, a uh, film producer the other day who's trying to make a movie uh, about George Washington. I don't know if this movie will be made. I don't know if it would be a good movie. Um, but producing films and novels and stories and other arts that are not constrained by pedantic questions of scholarly accuracy seems to me of the highest importance um, and is probably a more promising avenue for renewal um, than endless debates um, about what is taught in 10th grade. Um, I also think that any effective response has to involve the revival of the sort of mediating institutions that the first panel um, discussed. Um, and those institutions, if it's important to understand, will often be institutions of disagreement and dissent rather than unity or agreement. When we associate effectively with others, it's usually because we share some belief or commitment or affiliation that's limited, whether it is a church or um, an interest group 
or um, a particular education institution. It works because it's not for everyone and doesn't attempt to be for everyone. Um, and I'm very critical in the book of efforts that I think are actually um, more characteristic um, of the center left than the right um, to seek a sort of wishy-washy consensus through a um, process of, subst- of subtraction in which we ignore all the things that we genuinely disagree about, passionately so, um, and try to find some vague and abstract principles that we can all sign our names to but don't really care about. Um, it's through commitment to particular uh, ideas um, that are not universally shared that we actually form and shape our lives. And it's through that process that I think um, the kinds of um, citizens that we need are most likely to be produced. Um, I also think, though, and here I'm very sympathetic to some arguments associated with the new nationalism, that in addition to encouraging the development of new and better institutions, um, we need to discourage and undermine existing and bad institutions. Um, And uh, whether we are talking about the um, concentrated power, and in some cases monopoly power, um, of uh, big tech or higher education or the NGO complex, um, I think that is entirely appropriate to use national political power to try to break up these entities, not because they are insufficiently nationalist, but in a way because they are too nationalist and in the wrong manner. They are, they are exercising concentrated um, power that interferes with the kind of institutional diversity and genuine pluralism um, that uh, I cherish and think others should as well. Now, um, some reviewers of of the book, um, including the author of a recent piece in the Wall Street Journal, um, found this conclusion unsatisfying. Um, And this part of the book was was described um, as dry and pessimistic, which could be a criticism, but I thought maybe it's like like a martini. It's, you know, it's it's bracing. Um, But I, I, I... Sincerely don't think that's true. I mean, I I think this is a moment um, of great opportunity um, as the corruption of uh, existing institutions has become um, undeniable. And as in many ways the experience of the pandemic and the last 18 months has opened up new possibilities for reorganizing um, our lives and activities in places and among people with whom we can agree, and in agreeing, we can also disagree productively rather than merely shouting at each other on Twitter. Um, So it's for you to judge uh, whether this is an optimistic or pessimistic conclusion, but I I really do think um, that this is a moment of possibility. Hmm. Thanks, Sam. Dan, the floor is yours. Well, as uh, both Sam and uh, Johnny's opening remarks have indicated, when we talk about nationalism, we're often talking about apples and oranges. And even using the same terminology while having very different ideas in mind can make it uh, difficult to put them all within one frame and allow us to get a common understanding. But I'm going to try to at least suggest some ways in which the use of nationalism right now as a political label does have some salience for the kinds of arguments 
that uh, Sam has made in his book, which as he has told us, is not primarily about uh, you know, current questions of economic nationalism or immigration or foreign policy. It's more about the overall notion of whether there should be a, um, you know, a common identity that Americans share that has um, something sort of more substantial to it than might be indicated by simply uh, you know, uh, uh, nominal citizenship or what have you. And I do think that there is a, a, a challenge here where academics, especially because the academy today, even people within the relatively more humanistic uh, side of it, they want to have a strict scientific absolute definition of concepts and of the materials that they're working upon. They don't like messiness. And so I think that when you have an academic treating something like nationalism, which is messy, and which is not amenable to a simple definition, you wind up creating um, uh, what would be in other contexts called straw men. And in this case, I don't think Sam has you know, set out to do that. But I think that you get a nationalism that's a little too brittle, a little too sort of firmly um, aiming at one particular goal, which in, in Sam's case is this goal of cohesion, this goal of unity. Uh, whereas in fact, I think if you examine the ways in which American nationalism or nationalisms have uh, operated over the course of the last 200 years and, and more, you'll find that they in fact exib exhibit and exemplify the kind of pluralism that Sam himself is interested in defending. Um, so take, for example, this idea of uh, the covenant. Uh, the covenant is a form of nationalism which uh, Sam traces to the uh, New England uh, sort of experiment in Christian republicanism with the Puritans and so forth. And uh, Sam quite rightly points out that there are elements of this to be found in the American Revolution and in the War of 1812. But of course, the American Revolution in general is not characterized by the ideology and by the particular view of nationalism that one finds in this New England idea of Christian republicanism. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had different ideas, for example. Uh, a wide variety of Americans had nationalistic aspirations in the revolution, quite obviously it was a nationalist movement, uh, without having the uh, formula that Sam uh, you know, sort of emphasizes there. Similarly with the War of 1812, a lot of the jingoes who wanted to fight the War of 1812, who wanted to invade Canada, uh, they were actually the opposite of the New England uh, Christian Republican types. Uh, the Christian Republicans at that point, as Sam notes in his book, uh, they wanted to actually secede. They had things like the Hartford Convention, where they discussed the fact that they, they didn't like slavery and they didn't like the War of 1812, and so they wanted to break away from America. I think it's strange to call that kind of secessionism a form of American nationalism. There is a sense in which it is fair. I mean, it is, it is a kind of nationalism of, of a sort, uh, whether it's American nationalism or Christian nationalism is perhaps more of the uh, question to be raised. But in any event, um, nationalism is a complex phenomenon in all of these eras from the founding on through to today. What makes it so salient today is the fact that so many of the problems we're facing, uh, including the problems that our uh, intermediary institutions and our subsidiary uh, communities are facing, are things that require some degree of national defense and national engagement. So it is the responsibility of the federal government at this point to take care of our borders, to uh, you know, be in, responsible for the integrity of citizenship. It is the responsibility, of course, of our uh, federal government to be in charge of uh, foreign policy. Uh, that's been the case since the Constitution was first ratified. And uh, in questions of trade, you often see uh, people adopt rather romantic views of the idea that you could have uh, just purely sort of state-based or local community economies that are divorced both from the national economy and from the global economy. But that's not the case. Obviously, the global economy, the power of a consumer force like China, the power of large uh, tech companies and others, these have the ability to overawe any local community. 
And if a local community is going to stand up to those kinds of foreign powers and concentrated uh, market powers, you're going to need something like uh, a degree of federal government power on the side of the local communities. So I do think that the Madisonian formula that sees our country as being partly national, partly federal, is the correct formula, and that there is, in fact, great wisdom uh, back you know, in the founding and in the continuation of that philosophy through to today. Um, Sam is right that you know, the quest for a single sort of cultural unity is always going to be elusive, but I don't know that that has to be the goal of nationalism or of people who think of themselves as nationalists. And one of the things that is especially important right now is for a kind of nationalism that will counteract anti-nationalism, that will counteract all of the identity politics and the vociferous tendencies that are being exacerbated by the American left today. Uh, if you're going to have a sense of democratic legitimacy or simply um, any kind of legitimacy between a government and its people, there has to be some sense of connection between the two of them. And that's not just a matter of voting, it's a matter of feeling as if you are somehow culturally represented by the people who have power over your lives. And ideally, this would be true not only of elected representatives, it would also be true of people who have enormous private power over your life as well. Uh, corporations, for example. Corporations should have a sense of American citizenship. They should not just think of themselves as citizens of the world. I think in order to have this kind of connection between the federal government, between the administrative state, and the American people, you do have to have a sense of the American people. And you do have to have some degree of work to cultivate a, uh, an L, a degree, not, not a 100% Americanism, not a nationalism that is perfect cohesion, but you have to have at least a degree of defense of the existing national identity that Americans have against these vociferous tendencies, against the idea that we are simply consumers out in a global market, against the idea that we are uh, you know, primarily defined by our ethnic identities or by other um, subnational groups. Our citizenship, the heritage that we have of our uh, politics, and um, the sort of unconstructed, uh, just cultural experience we have as Americans. Not an ideology, but simply a, uh, a way of being. This is what nationalism should be understood as. And I think that it has enormous political salience right now. I think Sam's book is very valuable for raising important questions about nationalism. But I do think that in dismissing nationalism, as he tends to do, and being critical of the idea that you can have a mild nationalism, I think that is mistaken and, in fact, quite a, a dangerous conclusion. Sam expressed some apprehension that Johnny had stacked the panel against him. So I will begin by reassuring him that there were many things in the book that I agreed with. And I think one of the wisest and most acute points that he makes in the book is that nationalism is not about agreeing on things, but about the way we disagree. And I love that because that locates the essence of American identity not in beliefs or in ideology or even in institutions, but in practice. That it doesn't matter if we can all sign our names to some list of beliefs as long as we are able to. It's through the act of coming together uh, as common citizens that we forge our American identity. And this is why one of his very sound pieces of advice is that at the federal level, we really ought to rehabilitate Congress we uh, right now seem to be in a very toxic cycle of caring only about the executive branch and through the executive branch, the judiciary, because that's where the power is. And that actually the legislative branch, which is where this contestation you know, happens best, that's what legislatures do, 
is now the weakest branch. So if we want to engage in the practice of disagreeing productively, rehabilitating the legislative branch and Congress is very high on our to-do list. And I think that that's a, a feasible goal and a good one that would have the good effects that Sam describes. However, I'm, I'm shocked, Sam, that, that whoever it was in the Wall Street Journal called you pessimistic, because if, if the book has any fault, it is over-optimism. <laughs> and my pessimism is in the way that we disagree at a level down from the federal government, and that's the mediating institutions that Sam talked about. He said in order to have a healthy, productive nationalism, those mediating inst- that's, that's where it lives. That's our, the, you know, the way we come together and disagree, that's, that's where it happens in, these, in civil society. And I think that right now civil society has, has never been weaker in American history. And there are five reasons why I am very pessimistic that it will ever come back. Um, so the five reasons why mediating institutions are weak now is one, crowding out by government. Um, This is a classic conservative argument, and it was first made in the 1960s, and things haven't gotten any better since then. So at a certain point, decades of government crowding out means that we've just lost the collective muscle memory of of civil society and how to do it. The second is that um, single-sex organizations are now effectively illegal. I think a lot of younger people don't realize that the the great institutions of the 1950s that made civil society function were very frequently all male and all female. Um, And then in the 1970s, feminist groups used anti-discrimination law to sue every private club and organization in order to admit women, which sounded nice at the time, but in the same way that men are different than women, groups of men are different than groups of women. They have different dynamics and different strengths and weaknesses. And all male groups tend to be really good at being task-oriented and have a lot of the virtues that civil society requires. And so by completely getting rid of them, that was maybe, you know, if you were to try to revive those institutions today, it would be against the law. Um, So that's probably a big obstacle. Uh, The third (laughs) is that national... The national operations of civil society groups have been captured by wokeness. So your average Boy Scout leader is not himself woke. Your average Rotarian is not himself woke. But the national organization that supervises them has absolutely been captured by the, you know, all the latest left-wing fashions. And when the national organization has contempt for you and your values, that makes people at the local level less inclined to be invested in these civil society organizations. So that's a huge, huge weakness. The fourth reason is that the leadership class that used to make civil society run has been decimated in much of America. Um, one, reason, you know, one reason is meritocracy. The people who used to be you know, the smartest and most capable and leaderly in their small communities are now hoovered up into elite colleges and universities, and then they move to coastal cities and stay there. Um, So they they simply are not there in small town America. Uh, This is also due to changes in the economy. Um, Somebody who owns the local grocery store is gonna be a community leader in a way that the manager of the local Safeway 
isn't, because the manager of the local Safeway is effectively an employee. He's not self-employed. He doesn't have his own property. Um, he answers to somebody else. So in that way, the nationalization of a lot of commercial enterprise in America has really weakened the, the leadership class that we maybe depended on a lot more than we thought we did. And the fifth and final weakening factor in civil society is immigration. Now, Sam rightly highlights that civil society organizations are actually usually a very effective means of assimilation. And that it, it really doesn't matter if you have people from lots of different groups. Um, when they come together in things like the Rotarians or mediating institutions or churches, whatever it is, that can be a re actually a really effective mechanism of integration. But the thing that makes the immigration of the last 50 years a lot more of a challenge in that rosy story than, say, the wave of immigration at the start of the century is that it doesn't work as well when the immigrants themselves do not have a cultural inheritance of civil society. Um, in Latin America, for example, you, you simply don't have a tradition of these grassroots organizations um, because for, for centuries, culture there has been a lot more hierarchical. So it doesn't mean that they're any less civic-minded or they don't care about their you know, locality, they don't care about their neighbors, but it means that when you've got a problem in your neighborhood in Mexico City, um, the, the solution, the way you go about finding a solution is not to get together with your peers and form a grassroots organization, is to find a, a patron who can then solve the problem for you. Um, so having, without that tradition of civil society, it's a lot harder to do the work of coming together in this way. So Sam is optimistic, as I said. He, he thinks that American nationalism and identity has always been contested, and we've never really agreed on everything. Um, but I worry that we may not be able to come together and forge a new American identity anew in this generation the way that we have in previous uh, eras when American identity has been challenged or contested. So I'm just a lot more pessimistic. Hopefully somebody else can say something to cheer me up. <laughs> Rachel? So Helen and I did not discuss our remarks before we, we got up here, though we did mention that women tend toward agreeableness. And in this case, I will agree <laughs> um, with, with much of, of her conclusions, because I think the way that you just put it, which is the function of how we disagree is so central to what I think Sam is, is touching on in his book. And one of the threads I think you mentioned, <clears throat> Sam, and that you pull on slightly later in some of the symposiums that I've read and, and some back and forths, is this idea of our federal institutions being unwilling or now incapable of mastering the pluralism that I think is essential to American self-government and American democracy and American identity as has always been, I think, understood. And what I mean by this specifically is the Congress, which Helen mentioned as well. And I think you know, the Article I function of the Congress is to represent so much of our differences. That was the genius of our American founding, was it created the federal mechanisms for and by which people with multiple different identities and beliefs see themselves reflected in our national discourse and our national decision making. That does not 
happen anymore. And by this, I mean these great central questions of who we are and how we are going to live together are not debated, they are not deliberated, they are not voted upon. And in fact, in many of these cases, we as a government have chosen fiat. And what I mean by this is, if you're ever in DC in the spring and the fall, you will notice the entire city shuts down on Tuesday mornings, Wednesday mornings, and the third Monday of every month. Does anyone know why? That's when the Supreme Court announces how it has decided to rule us. <laughs> and I am a great critic of the right in this case, how much we have outsourced our centralized and, and fundamental self-government decision-making to what I call the juristocracy. Right? We, have, we have chosen to be ruled you know, by these black-robed masters who are deciding for us very central questions to who we are. Questions of immigration, questions of abortion, questions of great cultural significance that all of us should have a say in are now handed down upon us. And of course, you're going to create division and factionalism when those decisions aren't made by the people's representatives. When we do not see these questions you know, in their full flourishing, and there will be tremendous disagreement. That's the point. That is why we have a Congress, is to reflect that sentiment. Because I think when people see themselves and they see their, their ideas being given weight and consideration, what, regardless of whether the outcome is on their side, they have skin in the game, right? They've seen themselves as part of that collective decision-making. And instead of fiat, it becomes you know, less consensus, but more of a consensus type of decision-making. And, and this is really something, uh, you know, I think that if we do not reclaim it, we'll have deadly consequences. You know, so much of, of what we saw on January 6th, and I do not want to take what I think is a very complex element and reduce it to something simplistic, but I think one element of it was the fact that so much of our representative self-government has a cathartic function, right? It's supposed to be a catharsis. These great, significant questions of, you know, really fraught with emotion and, and, and so much uh, heat, light and heat, when they don't take place, when that catharsis is not given, people respond. And, and I, you, you, you have these terrible images of people, you know, rushing into the Capitol. You know, that is, I think, a consequence in, in a great many ways of, our, of a failure of our self-government to, to answer and to respond and to reflect concerns that, that people have at a very local and, and functional level. And so I really do think this question of identity cannot be solved if our self-government and our representative institution refuses to grapple with it. And they, and they simply do not. You know, I've talked about how I think they outsource so many of these questions to the judiciary, to the executive branch. Um, but even very simple questions do not receive debate. I think it was last, the last session of the Senate had six amendment votes, six. And if you go back to the Senates and the Congresses of, of the early 90s, 1992, 1993, it's very, you know, 21 bills were passed in the 102nd Congress. Of those 21 bills, each bill had between 50 and 75 amendments, most of which were given to the minority party. What is interesting about that is at the end of, that, those, of those 21 bills, how many times do you think a filibuster was mounted? Once. And I would posit that the reason was because everybody participated in the process, 
right? They all had their say. They saw their priority come and be considered in the great, you know, well of our democracy. And they said, okay, you know, I, you know whether or not we've agreed, I, I've, I've had my say. I've, I've, I've seen my idea considered. And there was no need for a filibuster at that point. And so I think until and if we are able to recapture that, we will still see, you know, these, these divisions that, that become even more ingrained and entrenched in who we are. Um, so I don't know if that's more optimistic or pessimistic, <laughs> um, but I do think we have to recapture that Article I function, that representative element, or we will not be able to solve these questions of identity because they are so, so central uh, to being, we have, they, these questions have to be heard, and we have a, a system for that. That's the whole beautiful thing about this. We have a system with, that is designed to do this. We just have to, I think, recapture it. And I work in D.C. I, I meet with a lot of these members of Congress, and I'm here to tell you that they are terrible. <laughs> uh, uh, and I do not see a lot of, of the courage and fortitude that, that one will require to be the, the person, the Jimmy Smith in this case, that goes down and forces these questions. But maybe one day, some of you sitting here will, will do it for me. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. Before we move on with our interview, I wanted to give you a brief message from a friend of ISI, the Acton Institute. What good is freedom without virtue? Join economists, religious leaders, writers, newsmakers, and thinkers every Wednesday for conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics on Acton Line, the flagship podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish and that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. To subscribe to Act in Line, visit actin.org slash ISI or search Act in Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's actin.org slash ISI to subscribe. Now, let's get back to our interview. Sam, before we get to questions, I'll give you a chance to respond to the, uh, the comments from the panelists. So... Um just briefly and, and <clears throat> in order, Dan um, politely but distinctly suggests um, that uh, I've created sort of straw man version of nationalism that doesn't correspond well either to what's happening today or perhaps in the past. And I, you know, I think to some degree um, that is an imperative in discussing anything. You have to have some definition or account of, of the phenomenon that you are talking about. But I do, um, in the book, particularly in, in the introduction, try to avoid a sort of caricature distinction um, between nationalism, which is bad and evil and mean, and patriotism, which is good uh, and virtuous. And that's the way the distinction is often drawn. Um, because I, I think, and I agree with Dan, that these words have been used in very similar uh, and often interchangeable ways in different in different contexts, and looking for some trans historical essence um, is not going to be successful. So here's really the, the distinction um, that I do think is important, whether you want to call it nationalism, patriotism, or something else, and it. it builds on um, one of Josh Mitchell's observations in the first panel. One is an understanding of American identity and membership that is based on a direct practical encounter and is in certain ways open-ended. We don't know what the result is going to be until we do it, until we live together. 
as opposed to an understanding of what it means to be American, which is in certain ways similar to identity politics. It's predetermined. The answer is given. You don't need to find out through this encounter and through these formative processes what, what it means. You just need to assert who you are. So I'm in favor of, of the former. Um, and again, if, if, it, if it pleases you to call that nationalism, that's fine. I, I really don't think um, the terminological debate is, is the important thing um, here. Although I, I do wonder, that if, wonder whether if that is what you want, whether nationalism is the right label um, to sell it, because fairly or not, it does have unpleasant connotations, um, and I'm not I'm not convinced um, that struggling against those rewards the efforts. Um, as for Helen, who manages to be more more depressing than than I am, um, <laughs> I, I mean I I, mo- I, 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 mo- I mostly agree that these are um, that these are challenges. Um, my historical instinct, though, is that these are not altogether new challenges, um, and there have been periods in which they have been met more effectively than we seem to be doing um, at, at present. Um, and I think that in conservative or right-of-center circles, the so-called progressive era gets, gets a bad rap, because this is when people decided they hated the Constitution, they didn't believe in natural rights, and everything went to hell. Um, but it was actually a period of extraordinary institutional and social innovation, um, which attempted to deal with some very similar, um, very similar phenomena. So I, I think there's, there's inspiration there, even though it is impossible to transfer directly strategies or arguments that were effective in the late 19th century um, to today. And I, I think that that includes um, immigration. I, I mean, I don't want to dismiss the influence of ancestral culture, but I'm not, I'm not convinced um, that Latin American or other immigrants today are any less predisposed to civil society than, say, Southern Italians were uh, 150 (laughs) years ago. Um, The difference is a political system um, that does not require, and in some cases exactly um, as, as you and Rachel described, does not permit people to organize themselves um, in ways that I think would have this, this formative effect. So um, there, there has to be a, a liberation of civic energy and institutional creativity that I think requires reducing the, the influence um, of national institutions, and in particular, the most concentrated institutions um, of, of national power. And that's another reason that, that I would hesitate descriptively to call this nationalism, um, even if others want to call some similar arguments or proposals um, by the same name. Uh, I agree entirely with, with Rachel, except on, on one important point, um, which connects to my, my defense of culture and, and imagination and storytelling as an element um, in civic life. And that's that Jimmy Stewart in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is the worst possible model. <laughs> this, is the most per- this is the most pernicious um, image of what Congress should be because he prevents 
members of Congress, members of the Senate who are engaged with their, their own constituents and are civic leaders in their communities from doing the business in a slightly dirty way that will deliver concrete benefits um, to, to their, their citizens. It's a totally he, fair critique. He has, <laughs> he, has to, he has to stand on principle and demonstrate to everyone how wise and virtuous he is and how he's above compromise. Um, so when I, when I teach this movie to um, my, my students, I, I try to convince them that the corrupt Senator Payne is the true hero <laughs> Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Um, but I have not yet succeeded. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sam. Uh, we'll now move to uh, 15 minutes of audience questions, and we're going to start uh, with the app. Uh, so we've got a question from Elise. Uh, to what extent has the economic growth we've experienced since the founding undermined national identity? You could also put it in the inverse. To what extent has the uh, economic growth that we've experienced since the founding strengthened national identity, depending on which, I guess, historical period you're looking at? Well, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not an economist or an economic historian, so I, I always recur to these vague historical, these vague sort of cultural categories um, rather than uh, indulging in, in data. You know, I just, I just don't know, and that's not really what, what I do. I mean, I think the issue, as I understand it, has less to do with economic growth per se than different technological and economic structures that impose different incentives. Mm. Um, so one reason that nationalism was, was appealing um, to, to industry in the 19th century um, is that it was a way of constructing larger markets and connecting producers and consumers much more efficiently than they had previously been able to do. And one of the reasons for the, the decline of connection between um, business and the national state um, over the last 100 years has been exactly the same reason, the pursuit of greater efficiency, um, access to larger and more prosperous markets, um, and, and so on. Um, so you know, my, my, my instinct in all of these questions, without having um, a definitive answer is to think a little bit less about ideology. And I, I think that um, intellectuals in general, but conservative intellectuals in, in particular, tend to overemphasize the principle that ideas have consequences. So there are these bad ideas, and we have to refute and expose them, and then we'll replace them with good ideas. And think about institutional incentives that lead different actors, whether individual citizens or members of Congress or economic entities, to behave in undesirable ways. Um, and if we want them to behave differently, then the question is, how can we change the incentive structures that will reward them or not for doing these things? Um, I think rather than yelling at them about how terrible they are and that they, you know, they need to read more Madison, even though that would be a good thing for everyone to do. I mean, I do think you have to consider the extent to which your society and culture, including the institutions of enculturation, the educational institutions, the schools, are promoting uh, economic efficiency and economic integration globally as the summum bonum. I mean, if that is what it means to be a good person in the 21st century, is to be an efficient global consumer, um, then you're obviously going to have this tendency to destroy uh, congressional... Uh, attachments, attachments to 
you know, your, your federal government. You're just going to think of these things as simply administrative zones for you know, particular uh, sets of economic regulations. If you want to counteract that, I think you do have to affirm some sort of alternative. You can't beat a horse with no horse. And one of the alternatives that you can affirm is the idea that the nation state, as something that combines economic interest with the idea of citizenship and with the idea of a historical experience, uh, that the nation state is um, an alternative to uh, simply a world of consumers, administrative jurisdictions, and uh, vast economic powers over which no individual consumer has control. My question was prompted by a comment Rachel made, but probably applies broadly to the discussion. I'm wondering, um, I, I'm a great fan of Mark Levin, and I read his uh, book on uh, basically Convention of States, um, and was really struck by the argument that the problem with Article I uh, was introduced by the 17th Amendment. Um, to what degree is the problem that Senate races are national? I, I mean, I, I get, material to donate to Ted Cruz's Senate campaign, and I, I, I used to live in Delaware, I now live in Connecticut. Uh, <laughs> I, I should have nothing to do with Ted Cruz's Senate campaign, and yet I find myself interested in Ted <laughs> Cruz's Senate campaign. But he wouldn't be asking me for money if the 17th Amendment hadn't passed, and to what degree do you think that, and possibly more broadly, Convention of States is a direction we should be going? Are we all on board with repealing the 17th Amendment? <laughs> I think Dan isn't. Well, I'm just skeptical that it would have the uh, salutary effects that are imagined for it. The thing is, before the 17th Amendment came into effect, most states had already adopted sort of virtual systems of uh, direct election of senators. And um, so, you know, the other thing, too, is I just don't know whether people are going to want to surrender that power as voters and give it back to state legislatures. It's always a hard ask to say to a voter, hey, you don't get to decide on this yourself. You have to give this to your state legislator. Even if that's you know, a wise argument to make, it's a very hard argument to get people you know, personally to go for. I, I think also, um, specifically with regard to fundraising, part of the cause is, I'll assume well-intentioned campaign finance reforms that have made it very, very difficult for the national parties to raise and distribute money. So candidates are on their own, which means they want to reach out to the largest possible um, network of potential, of potential donors. So I think among the institutional reforms or, or innovations that would be useful um, and are probably more plausible in repealing the, the 17th Amendment um, is uh, enabling parties uh, to do more of their own fundraising, um, which will relieve some of that pressure on candidates, and I think also will help parties function, re restore their traditional function as another mediating institution, not just a brand for independent candidates, um, but as a coalition that can influence that can influence um, its members. So that that seems more realistic to me. I don't think a convention of the states would be a good idea. Um, some of you may have seen the um, version of this uh, produced by um, the progressive journal Democracy. They invited a number of constitutional scholars and historians to propose a, a, new, uh, a new constitution, and it was an utter disaster. And I, I tweeted something like, the best 
argument for the genius of the framers is what everyone else proposes, even though it's easy to find particular elements of the Constitution that are obscure or we can imagine might be improved, I find it utterly implausible that we would do better on the whole. Um, and I think we would almost certainly do worse. Hmm. Jeff Paulette, front row. Uh, I find it kind of astonishing that all four of you discussed the problem of nationalism without discussing war at all. Uh, it is a chapter in Sam's book. I, well, I haven't read the book. I'll, 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 it was too uh, dry and pessimistic for me. So. Or, or worse, misguided and dangerous. I mean, that's. Uh, it was only it was only the conclusion that was too dry and pessimistic. The, the book as a whole was slim and elegant, <laughs> according to this reviewer. I mean, I, I think there was a moment in Much in like around 9/11 where there was this kind of sense of what does it mean to be an American was kind of raised with a sort of new urgency again. And I think war was offered as a solution to it, and it failed miserably. Um, so I wonder if uh, uh, you could comment on uh, whether it can be done, the, the kind of renewal that you're talking about can be done without war, uh, uh, whether the, the price would be worth paying in any case, and uh, uh, how that might relate to some kind of permanent war state or the sort of militarization of the culture. Um, so I do have a, a chapter on this in which I argue that historically war has been the forge of nations, not, not only for the United States, um, but also um, for, for other nations. Um, and I think that has encouraged a misguided enthusiasm for international conflict as a source of cohesion, um, which was on vivid display 20 years ago um, in ways that now seem quite disturbing, knowing as we do how it, how it turned out. Um, I, I think um, that significant military conflict would almost certainly have the opposite effect today. Um, and whether you are concerned for peace in itself or for issues of national cohesion and solidarity, a more restrained foreign policy is, um, is, in, is in your interest. So that's one of these issues on which whether you want to call it nationalism or call it something else, um, I think that my arguments dovetail with those of some of the people that I'm disagreeing with. Yeah, I would agree with what Sam has said. Uh, it seems to me interesting that some of the most outspoken critics of American foreign policy over the last 30 plus years have in fact been self-identified nationalists, people like Pat Buchanan. Nationalism today in America as a salient uh, label tends to actually be much more anti-war, much more realistic and uh, you know, sort of um, restrained in its foreign policy than liberalism and humanitarianism and a more universalistic approach to uh, an outlook on America's role within the community of nations and so forth. It's actually liberalism that's been driving the wars of the last 30 years. And you can look at the rhetoric that uh, President George W. Bush employed. You can look at the rhetoric of Bill Clinton. All of these things are usually not making the case for American national interests, for America as having uh, you know, a, a nationalism that has to be expressed through these conflicts. Instead, it's about universal rights that have to be championed, vindicated, and established everywhere. In Afghanistan, for example, over 20 years. And of course, one of the things we've found here is that you know, we tried to set up uh, parliaments and uh, legislatures in places like Iraq, and it turns out you can't do that when you have the amount of um, weak nationalism that you have in a place like Iraq, because the parties are all sectarian parties, or they're, you know, tribal parties. They are all um, so, you know, attached to some subnational unit 
that it just they just fight for their own you know interest within the legislature. They're not you know there's no sort of national identity that they can all draw upon, or at least there is a very weak one. And I, I don't want to see America take that same sort of path. I don't want to see identity politics and a strengthening of uh, extreme fractionalism cause a, a progressive weakening in, of our legislative power. And um, you know traditionally, what you need in order to have something that is so multicultural and so uh, sort of um, not just pluralistic but hyper pluralistic is that you need a powerful centralized authority, uh, a singular executive, a singular kind of emperor figure in order to dominate that otherwise uh, disagreeing uh, community of just fragments that is not a nation. Uh, I think America has to avoid that fate and in order to avoid it, we have to work seriously to strengthen the idea of uh, the America as a nation state. And on that note, uh, let's give our panelists another round of applause. Upcoming on Conservative Conversations, we have episodes of Sarab Amari and Michael Knowles. And thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age articles, ISI books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. Conservative Conversations with ISI.